you have a Bible, open it to John chapter 9. Before we begin last uh, week, I would like to just address briefly something that we didn't get to talk about. And I know with the length of that sermon, you're probably wondering what there could have been left said. Um, But I do want to say something about what the man confesses about Jesus for just a moment. And he confesses two things importantly about Jesus. One, that he is a prophet. He does this at the very beginning of his testimony uh, in verse uh, 17. They ask him, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And he, he says that Jesus is a prophet. And he also says, although he admits that he is not the one who should be judging this, uh, earlier in the verse, he also says at the end that Jesus is not a sinner. Right? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He refuses to think of Jesus as being a sinner. We hear this and we understand how good this confession is. It is a strong confession, especially in light of the, the place where he is put. He is in front of a, a group of men who hold his future in their hands and he is unwavering in his commitment to Jesus. He speaks of Jesus as a prophet. We know that Jesus is indeed a prophet, priest, and king. And so it is not only familiar to us, but it is fitting that he does this. But we are so inundated with the idea of prophets, not only in our day and age, but in the Bible, that we can kind of miss how striking that confession must have been. So even as Pastor Richard read this morning out of the book of Ephesians, that the entirety of the church is built on the apostles and the prophets. We know that there were prophets who were sent out into the world in the New Testament time. In 1 Corinthians 14.1, Paul even admonishes us to pursue prophecy as one of the greater gifts. Even as we do that, even as we want that to happen in our church, and, and whether you're a cessationist or not, the church was built on the functioning of the prophets and the apostles, it is easy to see in the New Testament that there were prophets everywhere, okay? And it's easy for us then to read through the Old Testament and to know the last 16 books of that Old Testament were just prophets. We read of Isaiah, we read of Jeremiah, we read of Ezekiel, we read of Daniel, we read of Hosea and Amos, and as we go through, we immediately enter into the New Testament, and we can think that prophets were just always everywhere present, but there's several hundred years of quiet and calm in between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. John the Baptist broke that silence, but God had not spoken to his people through prophets for a very long time. So the fact that this man is calling Jesus a prophet is an important confession. It provides an incredible amount of weight and clout to what Jesus says. But he also says that he is sin. He is not a sinner. Now I want to make it very clear. When he says that he's not a sinner, it doesn't mean that he is actually confessing that Jesus is sinless. That is not at all what he means by sinner. After all, what does he do? He compares them to prophets. When he speaks like verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. What he's doing is he's looking at what the prophets did of old and saying they weren't sinners. Even though we believe that they had sin, they were not flagrant and outstanding sin. They didn't stand against the people of God and God himself. This is what they always meant by sinner. This is why the Gentiles were sinners. Gentiles were sinners because they always stood against God. They always had to because they did not believe in the one true and living God. And so while he confesses Jesus to be a prophet, he is not quite professing him to be sinless. He is professing a great number of good things. Just like the prophets from on old, they bring the word of God. They bring a revelation of God to mankind. They stand in the gap between God and man. The prophets of old healed lepers, 
The prophets of old raised the dead. The prophets of old rained fire down from the sky. The prophets of old parted seas. Jesus is an immensely important figure, and he is an immensely powerful figure. But all of that falls far short of what we have to confess. All of it is necessary. All of it is good. All of it is right. But that does not make somebody a full follower of Jesus Christ. There needs to be more than that to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. This man thinks well. This blind man who has had his sight returned to him by Jesus thinks well of Jesus. He speaks well of Jesus, even to his detriment in front of this trial and tribunal. But his confession, as radical as it might be, is not good enough. So what does it take for someone to become a full-fledged disciple of Jesus? What does it take for somebody to rightfully confess Christ in the world? Let's look at these verses and see if we can see what Jesus in the Spirit would lead us to understand. Beginning in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. This is the word of our God. Briefly, let's work through this text. Five things that this text sort of helps lead us through to see what it means to be a full disciple. First, I would tell you, it means that you must reject the world. You must reject the world. And this man was indeed cast out. The very last thing we hear before we read verse 35 is that they cast him out. But I'm going to tell you, this man was doing everything he possibly could do to ask to be kicked out. So it's clear that they were the ones who thrust him out. He didn't open up his mouth and ask, but he did open up his mouth. And he could have just kept shut and kept it quiet. He could have said, listen, Jesus healed me. I know this to be true. There are other people who would witness to that. He was the one who put mud on my eyes. He was the one who told me to wash. I don't know if he's a sinner. I'm not capable of judging him for those things. That is all I know. I once was blind, but now I see. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't keep his mouth shut. When they ask him for a second time earlier in our chapter about how Jesus did this, the man's sarcastic response of, do you want to become his disciples, sparks a firestorm. It's like a dam that has a hole plugged in it, and now all of a sudden that hole is pulled out and the water starts to come through. And then when they come back and they they have vitriol toward him, he unleashes, he kind of pops, and he says, well, this is an amazing thing. And the minute that those words come out of his mouth, his His fate is sealed. He knows what's going to happen to him. He doesn't seem to be a silly man. He doesn't seem to be a stupid man. His parents knew that even speaking about the good that Jesus did here put their position in the synagogue in doubt. I have no doubt that this man, once he opens his mouth, knows exactly what's coming to him. He knows, he knows that they will not treat him rightly. And I I don't want to make it seem like he's being unreasonable with the way he castigates them here. They deserve 
every minute of it. They are being obstinate, and they are being, frankly, ridiculous with their trial of Jesus through this man. I believe that this man is probably simply answering fools according to their foolishness so that they might not be wise in their own eyes. So yes, they kicked him out, but he was already going there anyway. He would rather have defended Jesus' honor than, and given him glory for what he had done than to have sided with the men who were sitting on that council. He would rather have defended Jesus, who had just given him sight, than to make himself and align himself with the men who were sitting in front of him, asking him again and again and again about this Jesus. He's now out of that. Yes, he is rejected by the world, but he has also rejected the world. This world of Jewish life surrounded the synagogue. It was the center of their social standing. It was a center of their cultural standing. It was a center of their religious life. It was a center of their life. To be kicked out of the synagogue is a way for you to be distanced from the only people that you have ever known. It was the end of his involvement in the world. Friends, this is precisely what we are called to do. We are called to be in the world, but not of it. Regardless of what you pretend or you think you know what that means, it's a very difficult way to, to live, but we understand that we have things in this world. We have to live in this world, but we are called to always hold those things with loose hands. That these things are never to define us and we are never to hang on to them. We don't need to live like hermits in the desert. It doesn't mean that we are to pull away from the world altogether. We are not to make ourselves separate and not involve ourselves in the world, but at the same time, the same time, we have to have died to the world, freely give up the things of the world if we need to. We need to be able to agree to the call to the mission field if God calls us there without holding on to the things that we hold so dear tightly to us. We have to be willing to let go of our worldly goods when friends and neighbors need them and not hold so tightly to them because God has called us to it. Because we love Jesus more than we love the things of the world. Whatever we might do, whatever we might need to relinquish of the world, we should be happy to freely let these things go so that we would not be tied to the world. This is what it means. This is what it means to reject the world. It means that we don't hang on to the things the way the world does. It means that all of the things that we have are freely to be given if God calls us to give them. Let's not be like that rich young ruler in Mark 10 who came up to Jesus and knelt before him and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your mother and father. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Jesus noticed the compassion in him, looked at him, and loved him. He loved him because he wouldn't leave him there. He loved him by looking at him and saying, One thing you lack, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The problem is not riches, but it's valuing those riches over following Jesus. And the more riches you have, the harder it's going to be to do. Jesus uses this story in his compassion for this man, telling him to go sell everything. Not because everyone needs to, but because that was the thing that this man was always going to struggle with. 
he turns around immediately and he says, yeah, it, is, it is difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven precisely because of this. It is difficult for them to give it up. This man was not willing to let go of his things. He was willing to say nice things about Jesus. He was willing to say good things about Jesus. But he was not willing to reject the world. And so he left sorrowful. We are to be less like him and more like Paul. Who in Galatians 6.14 said, I should not boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The things of the world are dead to me. I can use them. They are mine. But I don't need them. They don't define me. And I will gladly give them up if it means that doing so will cause more to come to Jesus Christ and to know him. He says, The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Friends, reject the world. Secondly, we should be found by Jesus. We should be found by Jesus. The news of the man's rejection from the synagogue travels fast. Jesus hears about it and he seeks him. And I want you to notice that he seeks him. The man does not come to seek Jesus. He didn't go out looking for him. He doesn't go out searching for him. And this is in accordance with what we've read already in John chapter 9 because he didn't do it in the first place. Again, of everyone who was ever healed by Jesus, of anyone who was ever saved by Jesus, this man is the most passive person in the world. We hear nothing of him asking to be forgiven. We hear nothing of him asking to be healed. Jesus doesn't even ask him if he wants to be healed in order to get a response from him. He seemingly just spits on the ground, makes mud, and throws it on his eyes and tells him to go wash. Now, if anyone else did that, that'd be incredibly rude, right? I make you dirty, now go wash. But Jesus was healing him. He doesn't do anything. The first words we hear from him is, yeah, I'm the guy that that happened to. We are prone to think. We are prone to think otherwise. The human response to any sort of need or want or lack of is to go fill it. So if we are thirsty, we seek out drink. If we are hungry, we seek out food. If we are lonely, we seek out companionship. And so this pattern then gets applied to the things of God. We find that we have a hole in our hearts. And you can look to Francis Schaeffer in this God-shaped hole that we try to fill with various and sundry things and none of them quite work. We have this longing and this desire that seems to continually be unsatisfied and we continue to do it until we find it filled in Jesus. And so we have started to talk about people who have this sort of longing that they can't quite quench, who come into churches looking for a quench for that thirst, looking for food for that hunger. We call them seekers. And we can even quote the venerable Augustine in this. He says that our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. And I'm not one to quibble with Augustine too terribly much, and so it's right as far as it goes. But let us be very clear. Calling people who do not know Jesus seekers is a horrible biblical misapplication of what it means to seek. Romans 3, 10 through 12. Paul quoting from Psalm 14 and then Psalm 53. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. There is no one who seeks God. In their unrighteousness, they might be seeking for something. They might be seeking to be filled, but they are not seeking the one who can fill them. They are simply seeking the one who can give them the things that they want to fill them. They don't want God. 
They want the good things that God can give them. He is nothing but a gigantic Walmart with a free check. That's the way they view him. That's the way all of us view him. Friend, what you need is not the things of the world or the goods of the world. It is not money, it's not power, it's not fame, it's not a better TV, and it's not a winning football team. What you need is Jesus, and what you need is God. Luke 19.10, Jesus says, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He says that in response to another rich man calling out to have mercy on him, Zacchaeus. And he, again, tells Zacchaeus, just like he told the other rich man, go and sell your stuff. Actually, he doesn't say that. Zacchaeus just freely offers it. I will go pay back everything that I've taken from people. And Jesus says, not, good for you. You've sought me and you found me. What does he say? I have come to seek and save that which is lost. In Luke 15, Jesus is compared to a shepherd who loses one sheep and leaves the 99 behind to go find and save that one sheep. He's compared to an old woman who loses a coin and diligently searches until he finds that one coin. Jesus is always the one who is seeking us long before we ever turn to seek him. In Ephesians 1, 3 and 4, we have this absolutely wonderful statement. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before the foundation of the world, friend, Jesus sought you. Before there was a foundation for the seas to be filled up in, he sought you. Before there was sun to fall upon the ground, he sought you. Before there were beasts to go on the field, he sought you. Before there were birds in the air, he sought you. Before man was made, before man fell, before your heart had a beat to it, before a thought crossed your head, and before you did anything either good or bad, he sought you. He knew you of old. And if life were a game of hide-and-seek for Christians, you would all lose, and praise be to God for it, because he would always find you. Where can you run? Even the darkness is light to God, as David says. How can we get away? Let us then hear Augustine's full quote from his confessions. You move us to delight in praising you. For you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Lord, teach me to know and understand which of these should be first, to call on you or to praise you, and likewise to know you or to call upon you. But who is there that calls upon you without knowing you? In other words, God reveals himself to you. He seeks you out. He shows himself to you so that you might call on him. How can you call on him whom you have not known and how can you know without it being preached to you? Jesus seeks you out. Hopefully, Jesus finds you today. It seems like it's a minor, minor plot point, but this speaks of where the honor, the glory, the boasting, the praise, and everything is due in our lives. If you seek God, you have a boast. God finds you, it is God's boast. Let us give praise and honor where it is due. And thirdly, we must believe in Jesus. And you would say, yes, of course you do. That's why you're here, many of you. But that question continues to confront us and it's always going to plague us. Is what Jesus precisely do we believe in? 
Do we believe in the God of revelation or do we believe in the God of our imagination? Do we believe in the Jesus that has been revealed to us or do we believe in the Jesus that we simply make up in our heads? Because friends, I'm going to be honest with you, it is difficult sometimes to tell. And I don't mean it's difficult to tell what you think as I view you. I think it's difficult to tell at times what I think. Jesus asked this blind man a very simple question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, if you're reading from the King James, it actually says, do you believe in the Son of God? That particular textual issue comes up because there are some very late and very uh, poor manuscripts that say Son of God. It should probably read Son of Man, but this has caused scholars to wonder, rightfully so, well, what exactly is the difference between calling Jesus the Son of Man and calling him the Son of God? John goes back and forth quite often. Does it even make a difference? Is there even a, a, a moment of, of difference in application or importance in these? And I don't think that there's a huge difference. But I think there is a small one, but I think it's important here. When John uses the words son of God, what he is talking about is who Jesus is in his being, that he is the incarnate word, that he is God in the flesh, that he is the image of the invisible God. It points us to his ontology, to the very nature of who he is. But when he uses the term son of man, it is pointed most fully at who Jesus is prophesied to be. It's pointing at the foretelling and the prophecy that Jesus would come, the son of man would come. We get this from the book of Daniel, these famous verses in Daniel where he says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the very ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. When John uses the term son of man. I think he points not so much to who he is, but about what he does and what he has prophesied to be. For let us not forget what we think of Jesus, especially as we read through the Gospels, will depend on a large part about what we expect that Jesus to be. the, The notions that we have of Jesus when we come to read about Jesus can be reinforced or ignored depending on how we read the Bible. This is one of the reasons why the Old Testament is there for us. The Old Testament is continually trying to reform and shape our expectations of who this Jesus is so that we will be able to see him and know him better. It paints the picture of a suffering Jesus in the book of Isaiah. It paints a picture of a great king in 2 Samuel 7. It paints the picture of a mighty warrior in the book of Joshua, his namesake. It paints a picture of an incredibly perfect priest in Psalm 110, of a kind and loving husband throughout the book of Hosea. So Jesus' question is not like the question that's posed to the disciples in the other Gospels. In the other Gospels, he says, who do you say that I am? Or who do they say that I am? But his question here is much more in line with, do you know what the scriptures say about the Son of Man? And do you trust in it? And do you believe it? Does he trust in this coming Son of Man that the scriptures speak of? Does he trust that this one who is coming to set the world to rights is actually one who will be brought forward? Remember that passage in Daniel? This man comes forward before God. Directly before that, Daniel has a vision of four beasts, each more terrifying than the next, nasty, disturbing creatures that come up out of the sea and rule over everything. 
At the very end of that passage, right before the verses that we read, God destroys one of them, puts the other three in sort of an apocalyptic timeout until he can come back and deal with them fully. And then we hear of this thing approaching the ancient of days. These beasts have been utterly wiped out from before him. It doesn't even tell us how God does it. So easy was it for him, he just dismisses them. We would expect that if one comes forward before the ancient of days and is presented before him, he would be destroyed just as easily because after all, this is nothing but a minuscule son of man. But instead, he is given glory and power and a dominion that lasts forever. It is, quite frankly, underwhelming the presence of this son of man. How powerful and wonderful and greater must he be than these beasts. He is nothing but the long-awaited king. He is nothing but the Messiah. Indeed, this man says, yeah, I trust him. Let me know who he is. Can you point him out to me? Let me see him. The man is pointed not internally, you'll notice. Jesus doesn't say, well, what do you think of him? What do you feel like he's going to be like? He's pointed externally to the one who stands before him. He's pointed to the incarnate word. He's not pointed at his assumptions. He's pointed at what is true and standing in front of him. He's pointed out of himself to the Jesus who stands in front of him and to the Jesus who is speaking with him. So the question that comes to us is who do we believe in? Do we believe in a God of our own form and fashion? Do we believe in a Jesus who looks like us, who speaks like us, who talks like us, who says the things that we want him to say? Or do we believe in the Jesus of Scripture? Let me be very clear. We are not the pure ones, we are not the holy ones, and we are not the righteous ones who do this all on our own. Would it be so that everyone in here understood the perfectly the Jesus that is presented in Scripture? But it is not. We are just as fallible and as feeble as everyone else. Our understanding and our misapprehensions of Jesus are just as damning as everyone else. We are just as culturally conditioned as everyone else. There's a famous and probably erroneous quote from Michelangelo. He sculpted David out of a block of discarded marble. If you've ever seen his sculpture of David, it is brilliant from top to bottom. It's just, it is perfect in all of its ways. And somebody looked at it and looked at Michelangelo and they said, how? How did you do that? How did you sculpt something that looks like that from simply a piece, a big block of granite? And reportedly, Michelangelo said, well, it was easy. I saw David in the marble and I chipped away at the surplus. Whatever wasn't David, I I took away. Now, that's not how you sculpt. That can't possibly be true. But it does help us with the work that Scripture has upon us. Because the work that Scripture does upon us is exactly like this. We have Jesus in our head as nothing but this, this massive figure. He's difficult and he's hard to understand. And we come back to Scripture time and time again. And Scripture begins to chip away at the things that aren't him in our mind. He continually reforms him and refines him. Now, some of us are really bad sculptors, and so we're going to have this kind of deformed view of Jesus, which is hopefully enough to get us through. But the more you read, the more you study, the more that the Spirit can work on that, the more truly and rightly you see Jesus in front of you. So, friends, believe in the Jesus of Scripture. Go to Scripture. Let it inform you and move you to understand and to know Jesus all the better. Fourthly, let us experience Jesus. 
Jesus replies to the young man's question about identifying who the Son of Man is, and he says he's the one you have seen, which is really interesting because this man has not seen Jesus. Remember, he put mud on his eyes and sent him away. This is likely the first time he's ever laid eyes on Jesus. But Jesus understands that sight is more than just seeing light coming into your pupils. When he says, you have seen him, he's speaking probably along the lines of John chapter 3 where he says, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He doesn't mean that you're going to see it coming down like a spaceship. He means that you can't understand it, you can't know it, you cannot experience it. This man has already experienced Jesus. He's already had his eyes opened. He's already experienced the miraculous and powerful work of Jesus among him. And friend, a lot of what we do in this place is head work. I want to fill you with knowledge. I want to fill you with doctrine. I want to fill you with these good truths. But all the doctrine in the world and all the truth in the world is not going to save you. It's important. You can't be saved without it. But you need something more than just that. You need to have an actual experience of the risen Christ. You can't just agree to facts. You can't just agree to doctrine. It's important that you do that. You have to do that. But we are not just here to speak of factual history that has happened. We're not just here to give you a historical account. We're not just here to explain philosophy and theology to you and leave it at that. We are here precisely because, or hopefully because, we have each experienced something of Jesus in our lives. And I don't mean just an emotionalism. I don't mean that you needed to speak in tongues or have revelations or be able to prophesy to be able to have an experience of him. That's not the experience of him that is ever held up in the New Testament as the thing. The thing is always love. You need to know that the Spirit is at work in you. To love him better by prodding at your sin. To love God better by moving you to call on your Father as Abba, Father. To love Jesus all the more. As First John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Listen to how he says that. If we love one another, God abides in us. You experience God if you've loved one another. If you don't have love, if you don't have a love for Jesus, if you don't have a love for other people, if you don't have a love that is abiding and growing deeper and richer and fuller, if you don't have that, friend, you have never experienced Jesus. And no amount of talking in tongues will ever, ever make up for that. No amount of considering that you have revelation for God will ever make up for that. If you do not love the people who are sitting next to you, you don't love the people that you've covenanted with, and you don't love Jesus more and more every day. I don't know that you've met Jesus. It doesn't mean that each day is better than the day before. It doesn't mean that you are growing in your love for him, because each day that you fail, you are reminded of the great love that Jesus has had for you, and it ought to draw you all the closer to him. So we don't just preach facts, but we insist on love. We insist that you agree with doctrinal 
affirmations, but we also insist that you love one another, that you care about one another, that you show affection for one another, that you help one another, and that you love God. These two are always tied together. They should never be pulled apart. Genuine love always knows the truth, but genuine truth always experiences love. Let us hold them together. Paul usually ends most of his letters by simply asking for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be upon those who read the letter. In 2 Corinthians, we have that, but with something beautiful added to it. He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In other words, grace leads to an experience of the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and a knowledge of who God is, him abiding with us and living with us, our experience of him. Friends, experience Jesus. And lastly, this ought to lead to us worshiping Jesus. You should worship Jesus. After all, that's what we have come here for. This man falls down before Jesus and he says, I believe. Now, the text says that he worships Jesus. The word that's used there to say worship could mean worship. In the Gospel of John, it most often means worship. It could just mean obeisance or reverence or an acknowledgement of somebody who is more than you are. Kings have this word done to them. They're not worshipped, but they're shown reverence. But in John, this word is only used for, in the Gospel of John, it's only used for worship. It's used most notably in John 4, where the woman says, hey, we worship on the mountain, you worship in Jerusalem, and Jesus says, now we'll worship in spirit and truth. Those verses there use the word worship only in a way that could be understood as a worship of God. So while this man is likely not worshiping God, John is giving us a preview of what will happen because Jesus has not been revealed in his fullness as God. He is not the resurrected Lord that he will be. And when that happens, this sort of reverence turns into what Thomas says, my Lord and my God. This is, of course, why we're here. We are here to bow low to Jesus, to bend the knee to him, to give him glory and honor for what he has done in our lives and what we see him doing in the world. It is not our job to be here and to be entertained. It is not our job to be here so that we can hear helpful anecdotes about how to live life or pointers that can make it easier or ways to clean it up. I don't think that those things are bad. And I think that those things can be part and parcel of what we do, but they are not first and foremost what we do. What we are here to do is to worship our risen God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here to give him reverence. We are here to read his word. We are here to sing his praises. We are here to ask of him because he is our great God. And in doing so, listen, this is meant to be a foretaste of heaven that we gather together around the word and experience and enjoy worship of him. For he is worthy of worship and he is worthy of praise. In the end, however, Jesus leaves us with a warning. He says that he has come for judgment into the world. It seems to stand in contradiction to 317 where it says that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world. But condemnation is easily a part and judgment is easily a part of him coming into the world. If he comes into the world and those who believe in him are saved, those who reject him are obviously not saved. As John 3.18 would say, they are condemned already. Even in coming into the world, Jesus has to bring judgment. Jesus here links belief to sight. 
so that those who don't see might see, and that those who clearly think that they see will be shown to be blind. He says this, and, and clearly it's in a, something of a public place, because these Pharisees pick up on it, and they say, are you, are you saying that we're blind? And Jesus says, well, yeah. Yeah, if you were actually blind, if you knew of the great need that you had of a miracle from me and a work for me to do in your life, well, then I could make you see. But the fact is that you think that you see. And because you think you see, you won't come to me for healing. You won't come to me for health. You won't come to me for well-being. You won't come to me so that you might gain sight. So because you think you see, friend, your sin remains upon you. And notice the full circle that we come to in this story. How'd the story begin? The disciples look at a blind man and they say, ah, where is the sin that led to him being blind? He's, he's blind, so he must have sin. And Jesus' final answer is, that is absolutely true. If you are blind, you have to have sin. But it's not the physical blindness that he cares about. It is their spiritual blindness of God. They do not see the things of God. They do not love the things of God. They do not care about the things of God. They are blind to the things of God. And Jesus has come so that those people who are blind, who know that they have a deficiency, who know that they have a need, who have it revealed to them, might have that need fulfilled in him, that he might make them well. But friend, if you feel as though you can stand on your own, if you feel as though you have no need of God, if you feel as though you have no need of Christ, if you feel as though your sin's not that bad and you will one day be able to piece it together, you will one day be able to make it on your own, you are blind. More blind than this man who had never seen a ray of light in his life. The warning is simply this. While you ought to reject the world, while you ought to be found by Jesus, believe in Jesus while you ought to experience Jesus, while you ought to worship Jesus, you need to understand, first and foremost, that you are blind and you are in need of a Savior. That Christ has taken away your guilt, has taken away your shame by taking it on himself. That he might die as a propitiation for our sins, that he might die to cleanse us from our sin, and that in trusting ourselves to him, our blindness might be made sight. And with that, we can truly see him and we can truly see the kingdom that is coming. Let us pray. Father, thank you for showing us our blindness and giving to us the one and the only one who can truly make us see again. If there are any here today who think that they see the world around them fine, who think that they are passing the exam, that they have something of a 2020 vision, I pray, Father, that they might test themselves again. Let them again see their blindness and experience the wonder of being healed by Jesus. Let them see their sinfulness and know the greatness of being forgiven by him. May he receive power, dominion, and a kingdom from you. May we worship him in spirit and truth and in all things. May his work be seen amongst his people. We pray for this, for our good, and for your glory. Amen.